Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 297, and today's guest is Hari Ravishandran, founder and CEO of Aura. The world of cybersecurity gets a lot of attention in companies and enterprises, but when you look at what's happening with consumers, the numbers for cybercrime and identity theft are staggering. Here are some stats. According to a report from the FBI, Americans lost more than $10 billion last year to cybercrime. According to the FTC, there were 1.1 million reports of identity theft in 2022. 71% of veterans and active duty service members have experienced digital crime. And let's not forget about all the data breaches that seem to be happening on a daily occurrence. It's a major problem, and like any good storyline, you need a hero to take on the bad guys. In this case, the hero is Hari and the team at Aura, who are all working to make a safer internet for everyone with their all-in-one digital protection for consumers. To take on this challenge, they even have Hollywood superhero Robert Downey Jr. and Hollywood mogul Jeffrey Katzenberg involved as investors and board members of the company. Hari is a serial entrepreneur who started Endurance International Group early on in his career and scaled it from scratch to an IPO in 2013 and grew it to over $1 billion in revenue. His decision to take on cybercrime and identity theft with Aura was a personal one. In this podcast, he shares his story of being a victim of identity theft, which opened up his eyes to the problem. Fast forward, this unicorn company has raised hundreds of millions of dollars from investors. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like a deep dive into the world of consumer cybercrime and Hari's thoughts on how AI will factor into the equation, the full life cycle story of Endurance International Group, an early cloud SaaS company focused on the SMB market, all the details about Aura's platform and how it is helping consumers in terms of its comprehensive approach, plus how they have been building a consumer brand, why you should always bet on yourself, and lots of other lessons learned from his entrepreneurial journey, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then what are you doing to build up your company's employment brand? If you don't have a content strategy, then it is very likely that you're just flying under the radar. The good news is that VentureFizz can help. A subscription to VentureFizz includes a content playbook for sharing all the details on your company, culture, and hiring process. We leverage all formats of storytelling to include videos, podcasting, employee profiles, and lots more. Reach out to info at VentureFizz.com to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Hari. Hari, thanks so much for joining us. Good to see you, Keith. Thank you. We're going to talk about your background story, the companies you've built, and obviously some great questions for entrepreneurs to hopefully learn from. But the elephant in the room is uh, what you're working on now, and that's um, you know cybersecurity, consumers, identity theft. And uh, you just appeared on 60 Minutes talking about this yesterday. So uh, you know this is a 10.3 billion dollar problem for the United States of people getting robbed from digital fraud. Uh, and the segment was based on, you know, elderly people being targets, but when you whittle it down, it's everybody's a target. So anyways, I just wanted to get your, you know, just, I have you, you're an expert in this space. So just want to get your thoughts on what's going on in the world of cybersecurity and, and consumers. Yeah, no, no, no. Happy to, happy to talk about it. You know, it's sort of a, a good and a bad situation. I mean, the good of it is we're more connected now online than ever before. So people are online uh, through their devices, 
more and more things like you know, whether it's e-commerce or kids learning uh all these things uh you're you're online doing that you know using uh, using services online now the bad of it is you're leaving a lot of data footprint behind as well at an unprecedented rate so there's just a lot more data about humans about families uh that's available online and the unfortunate part of that is that uh there is now almost a criminal enterprise that is uh, figuring out different ways to take this data package it up and uh and monetize it in ways that um are getting more and more sophisticated and so you know you as a consumer that are left with this low level sense of anxiety where you just feel like hey i ought to do something about it but i have no idea what it is and then when you start looking at uh, solutions out of the market it's very overwhelming I mean, there's like it, the problem isn't that there are no solutions it's almost like there are too many you know there's a solution for this kind of uh, an issue if you have a scam you got to go get this kind of uh, product if you have uh, a virus you got to go get this kind of product and if you're a general family, you don't have either the time or the uh, the sort of maybe the technical worthwhile to go, ex, you know, become an expert in a whole lot of these things to try to put them together. And not to mention that when you add up like eight or ten of these things, it actually starts to get expensive. It's like hundreds of bucks a month, basically. And so, so you know, that's that's the problem we've been trying to solve the last five years. And we want to make the internet a safer place. And you know, that means trying to do all these things with an all in one product. Hopefully a product that's you know much more proactive, like it doesn't wait until you're caught up in an issue, but tries to get to that uh, a lot sooner, which really in, in a lot of ways, we've been thinking about AI as a huge tool for that the last two, three years. And now, you know, obviously AI is having a moment um, and uh, uh, that can be used as a force for good as well as, as, as we've been trying to do. Well, that, that I definitely want to talk to you about the AI component. So obviously AI can be very useful and powerful to combat things that are negative, like what we're talking about. Uh, it's hopefully going to be amazing in terms of breakthroughs and science discovery and just so many possibilities. But there's so many other possibilities that criminals can do with AI too. So what's like, what are your thoughts as it relates to that side of the equation? Yeah, I mean, you know, the good versus bad, it's been a cat and mouse game forever, right? Whether it's sort of, you know, a criminal, um, you know, running into a store and, you know, figuring out how many things he can kind of steal and then running out, you know, with something as simple as that. And then now the good guys have to figure out how do I catch them? You know, do I put a camera out there? Do we have a cop or sort of a security person around the building? You know, with something as simple as that, all the way to now, you know, criminals using uh, things like AI technology to, impersonate somebody else's voice like doing synthetic voice or using uh ai to mass produce emails that look like it came from a human uh to be able to cast a wider net i mean there's so many of these use cases that keep coming up thematically it's not that different than the way it's been you know for years and years um where uh criminals use technology to try to move their trade forward which uh, which is obviously quite negative for the rest of us and then the companies and the, and, the, and the people that are advocates for security start to leverage things in a way where you keep on closing out some of these uh, uh, gaps or these holes that you leave behind in your security posture uh, as a company or as a, as a family. And so there too, you have to apply a lot of the, the latest technology, a lot of the AI kind of towards solving the issue. And the cycle keeps going because then you, 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 know, you kind of um, get rid of a few issues you know, criminals will find new issues, you get rid of those issues. So it's never going to go away. But what we're finding is as we harness more and more of this, and we have a lot more data available, 
to be able to protect families. The view is over time, the threats get smaller and smaller and smaller, or it get a lot more confined. It never goes away entirely, but uh, but you keep trying to get out in front of it as much as you can. And I mean, we could spend this whole episode and well beyond talking about all the different things that yeah. hackers can do to impersonate somebody, identity theft, all these things. But the one thing I picked up when I was doing some research preparing for this podcast was, so the most hacked device in the home is your printer. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. You wouldn't guess that. I think the drivers don't get updated pretty frequently on, on, on the printers. People kind of have them kind of hanging out. You know, they don't spend a whole lot of time on them. If they're printers that are not self kind of governing or self enabled, they tend to have older drivers on them. Basically, even on your computer, if you have an older driver, it actually works on your newer printer. And so many times it doesn't get updated. And if you've got a piece of software kind of sitting out there for a long time and as people find exploits, like a lot of times, like even like, you know, let's say you've got a uh, uh, a MacBook or, you know, like Apple, which is, you know, obsessive about security and they do a really good job. You see those like little update things that keep popping up that say, hey, you got to go update it. If you don't do it, you know, if you wait, you know, five, eight versions of stuff and you haven't kind of updated them, pretty high probability that they can hack into your, into your Mac, even though there's a lot of security around it. It's sort of a similar issue for printers, except that nobody actually keeps reminding you that you got to go update your printer device driver or your printer itself. Uh, so yeah, we, we see that quite a bit inside the home for sure. All right. Well, let's uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk more about this with the company you're building, Aura. But um, let's rewind the clock. So, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? I grew up in India till I was about fourteen, uh, and then I uh, ended up moving to the states uh, on a Rotary Exchange program, uh, and ended up staying back here to go to college and to grad school, et cetera. And uh, uh, so, lived in West Virginia, then down in Mississippi for college. And then out in California for graduate school uh, in in, in uh, uh, the Palo Alto area. So, were you always entrepreneurial? Uh, you know, growing up, India is probably, you know, the most prolific generator of small businesses. I would say, you know, there's basically sort of it's it's sort of very much in the lifeblood of the culture. So you see that around you quite a bit. Uh, my parents were. Uh, always dabbling in either sort of a, a business full-time or a business as an additional activity. Uh, so were my grandparents. So I, you know, I, I grew up seeing that quite a bit. But oddly, when I moved to the U.S., a lot of my mindset was much more around stability initially, which is, hey, you know, go to college, go to grad school, get a good job, you know, have it be kind of a stable life because um, you've kind of transplanted yourself from you know one country to the other so you've already taken on a lot of risks so now you want to make sure that you know other parts of your life aren't that risky but by the time i turned 20 um it was this extraordinary moment in time it was uh in the in the mid late 90s in in uh silicon valley and uh this was the 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 acceleration of the dot com uh boom that was happening and it just felt like it was this amazing exciting uh wonderful time where all these interesting companies were getting built. There was uh, a lot of access to capital and it just felt like we were sitting at the, at the precipice of something big. Um, and, you know, and I wanted in and I was, you know, I, I you know, I was like, well, I, I just, I just want to go work on something on my own. It just feels like I need to be in the middle of this thing. And so that's sort of what drew me back to, uh, to being an entrepreneur uh, from, from the time I was about 20 or so. So now, how did you get your career started? Because like, were you working before you started Endurance International Group or like, how did that? Yeah. So I, you know, I worked for two years as a, as a, 
an electrical engineer at, at a company called Sun, which Sun Microsystems, which ended up getting sure. bought by uh, by uh, Oracle eventually. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I was there for about a year and a half to two years after uh, college, as I was getting uh, as I was going to graduate school. And uh, you know, the thing that struck me at the time was I was working on interesting problems, but the thing I really missed was seeing the impact of the work I was doing on the customer because I was working on a part of a microprocessor that was part of a board, that was part of a computer, that was part of one of 10 different computers that they were selling. And I never saw a customer, never talked to a customer, had no idea if the thing I was working on had any impact on their life or not. I, I wanted to believe that it did. Um, and so I really wanted to get a lot closer to the customer. And I wanted to see that the work I was doing was actually impactful to, to people that were uh, consuming the product. And so that, uh, to me, was the big draw around sort of trying to do something that was much more entrepreneurial, something more on my own. Um, and so, you know, when I was first starting Endurance, I didn't have grand aspirations. I, you know, I wasn't going out there to go change the world. It was like a much more simple thing where I was like, hey, I like this notion of working for myself. I like the notion of being very close to the customer uh, and kind of seeing and knowing what they want. So if I can leverage some of the things I've learned, especially around technology, the internet and, and, and such, uh, that could be really interesting. And I thought about it much more simplistically, which is, hey, you know, what is my cost every month at that time, you know, including my rent and all my expenses of probably a couple thousand bucks a month. So I thought, well, if I can do something, making a couple thousand bucks a month, um, that covers my downside. And then if it turns out that I'm doing better than that, great. You know, I get to do what I, what I feel like would be interesting to work on. And uh, make a living out of it. Um, and that really was my initial motivation when I started endurance was, was that, which is, you know, how can I apply the skills I have, uh, to help these businesses kind of use the internet better. And, you know, it's, it started doing really well, like out of the gate. And, you know, I think that's, that's a little bit of the lesson I took away from that is, uh, betting on, all, on, on yourself, you know, almost always tends, tends to be a really good bet. And I think, uh, it, sometimes you just have, a lot more blocks in your mind and, you know, sort of uh, concerns, worries, et cetera, uh, that seem to kind of get bigger and bigger as you get older. So, you know, if you can start younger, it's it's always a better idea because the older you get, the, the blocks get bigger, I, I find, uh, for sure. Very, very true. Now for context, so this was 1997? 1997, yep. yeah. And you were early, like, so if you fast forward to the acronyms that people you know you were building products for the smb market right no one was yeah. doing that then you were building yeah. an early cloud SaaS company right so you were doing these yep. things in 97 yep. so how did you know that this segment would be a good place to build a build a business you know it's really interesting so this is where not having a plan actually worked in my benefit right so the, so the, the plan if you thought about it for, for me in 97 was my plan was to make sure that I was doing enough to pay my rent. So I didn't have to call my dad and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm bust and you got to send me some money for, for, for rent, uh, to which he would have said no. Uh, so, so there, <laughs> there really wasn't much of an option. And so, um, so what I was doing the first couple of years was working very closely with small businesses. So we would, you know, because we were trying to kind of, it was like a consulting type of business where we're like, Hey, if you're a small business, will help you get on the internet because that was an, the new thing that nobody really had a website at the time, uh, all of these things. Um, and uh, as I started working with these businesses, they were really interesting. Like 
one of our customers was uh, uh, somebody that had an, an offline bookstore that they were trying to move online and have like a bookstore online. One was like a cartoon developer, uh, you know, it was called the Angry Little Asian Girl. And it was like a like a physical cartoon that this lady in California was was making. Uh, and she wanted to put that as uh, something online with a subscription where people could come, you know, buy the comic strip, you know, on, on a monthly basis. So we got to work with all these really interesting, quirky, eccentric, uh, wonderful, amazing sort of uh, entrepreneurs across every part of the spectrum. And the thing that occurred to me was after having worked with about 100 of these types of folks is that the work we were doing for each one of them was very different because the businesses were all different. But when the work got done, they all needed a home. Like it needed to get to a hosting platform. It needed to get to something where they could receive email on a day-by-day basis. They needed e-commerce, which is sort of missing on their site. So that seemed like a common theme across all these businesses. So when uh, I was thinking about scale, it was really interesting. The first year with a lot less revenue, I was making a lot more profit than the third year where I had a lot more customers, but now I had to hire a bunch of people and that ended up kind of eating into profits. And so the bigger I got, the margins were shrinking. So if it felt like you're doing the same work for lots of people, then your margins could potentially be better because you build it once and then a lot more people use that service. And as your business gets bigger, it ends up becoming uh, uh, something that has a lot more operating leverage. So that's kind of how we kind of got into the into the, the uh, SMB and the cloud market was that sort of background, which was the most efficient way to get the solution to the SMB was through the cloud, uh, which didn't exist back then. They were all private clouds. So you had to kind of build out your own cloud platform. And uh, nobody was touching the SMB because they were these quirky, eccentric sort of you know, sort of outcasts that were kind of you know working on interesting things that they were passionate about. And a lot of them tend to go out of business. And so many companies don't want to service that market because they worry about the fact that you know if a lot of them don't survive past a year or two, uh, the consumption of their product will go down. So a lot of people just build solutions for the enterprise that tend to be more stable, but I, I've always loved the SMB market. I, you know, I just thought that you know I could relate to them uh, quite a bit more as a small business myself, and uh, uh, so that was a, an incredibly sort of fun and rewarding experience. Well, you grew the company to the point where it went public, and I think it was 2013. So obviously, you went through um, you know just crazy time of the dot com, the bust, but you know you had a market that was continuing to grow with SMBs because they needed to get online. So. It makes sense that you were able to weather that storm, but like, what did you learn scaling a company? Like, so, you know, other than the Sun Microsystems experience, you know, this is it's not like you had 15 years and a, you know, job where you were learning, like you were just kind of like running this company from scratch to, you know, doing, buying ads in magazines to getting your first customers to yep. scaling a company that goes public. Yeah. I mean, it's learning at every stage, I would say, you know, because I really had no knowledge, right? Because I kind of, as I got into it, as, as you mentioned, I've never, I'd never done it before. Uh, you know, the thing when you don't have a lot of resources, you tend to do a lot of the work within the company, whether it's taking the trash out or writing code for, uh, you know, some sort of service you need to build out to doing marketing, et cetera. So, you know, I ended up gaining a very healthy appreciation for how hard jobs are for, for different uh, areas of a company. So as we would bring in executives and as we were starting to kind of grow and run the companies was getting bigger, I had a lot of empathy for the work that the execs and their teams were doing because I tried to do that myself and you could see hands-on how difficult the job actually is. 
Um, so that, you know, that helped me sort of pick better executives because I'd sort of gone through the the journey uh, hands-on. Uh, it helped kind of drive a slightly better culture, I would say, because there was a lot more empathy sort of in the within, within the company. And the thing that you learn too is for every uh, part of the journey, the kind of people that you need and the kind of organization you build uh, will keep on changing. So like zero to 10 million looks a certain way, 10 to 100 looks a certain way, 100 to half a billion get, looks a certain way. And when I left Endurance, we we're doing about a billion two in revenues you know, that, you know, from like probably 700 to a billion two is very different. And it goes very much from being a hands-on operator to becoming someone that's much more of a, of a player coach as the company gets bigger, uh, going from like a very centralized system where you're making a lot of decisions to something that's very decentralized because you have to let leaders uh, create their own runway and build uh, their particular part of the business but you got to make sure everybody's aligned. So it becomes sort of like the coach mentality of kind of keeping everybody sort of in, in, uh, 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 in unison, basically. And so it's it's two different sets of skills. You know, entrepreneurs tend to be very much of that former. Um, so it was much more of a learned lesson for me as I was as the company was scaling, where you're like, okay, well, what I was doing when the company was 10 million in revenues and now when it's a half a billion um, is not the same and I need to evolve. And if I can't evolve, the company's not going to evolve. And if I can't figure out how to evolve, I ought to probably step aside and get somebody else to come run this business because it may not be my my kind of cup of tea. Um, but, uh, you know, luckily luckily for me, I mean, we had a lot of good uh, mentors, a lot of good investors, people you could talk to, learn from quite a bit. And uh, and that that helped as I kind of got through the, got, was going through the journey. And, and the one thing I will say is in that sort of 20-year window, you know, out of every hundred decisions you make, probably ninety-seven of them are wrong, and so so you gain a healthy appreciation for the fact that there are not many things, many things that you decide on that you can't walk back from. It's and it's okay to make mistakes as long as you recognize it pretty quickly and start start to sort of you know divert away from it. There are a few things that are one-way doors, and you got to be really thoughtful about those. But you know, many things. Uh, worrying about making the right decision, waiting for the perfect amount of data to make the right decision versus be, being very action-oriented, taking the information that's there and making quick decisions. And if they're wrong, you know, going backwards a little bit and then iterating has worked a lot better for me, I would say, uh, as, as an leader. Well, it definitely reminds me, I had uh, Gail Goodman, who was the CEO of Constant Contact on the podcast a ways ago. And, you know, Endurance ended up acquiring the company while you were there. Yep. Yeah. And it was just like, they were so early to market of email marketing and SMBs yeah. where finding investors to believe in what are you doing at what, how much per month? Like, it just was like totally foreign for investors yeah. to think that that could work. Yeah. Yeah. That's an amazing company. I think what Gail did there was pretty spectacular. I would say there was no market. Nobody was servicing the SMB in the early days. You know, everything starting with like actually running seminars for SMBs to actual, actually attend physically, uh, and getting them to understand the product. There was no demand for the product. I mean, she had to go create all the demand for it. It took them a long time. Uh, they were very product focused. It was, you know, so so a lot of things that you see now that you kind of take for granted, like a SaaS business, here's what the unit economics should look like. Like we had no idea. We didn't know what was a good SaaS company versus what's a bad SaaS company because we were one of the early SaaS companies in the market. And so, you know, I think some of the benefit we have now 20 years, 25 years into it is, uh, 
you know, you have a good set of metrics, which is, hey, you know, if your LTV to SAC is, you know, 6X, you know, that's a pretty good SaaS business. If your payback period is 12 months or lower, that's really good. If your burn rate is this. So all of those things, we were sort of trying to figure out what do they need to be? Like, you know, what's going to make a sustainable, good business? And so that had its own set of challenges because there just wasn't a big wealth of data available to us at the time either. So, so as you talked about, you know, you scaled the business when public continued to grow it while being a publicly traded company. How did you get to the point where you decide it's, it's time to move on? That's going to you know, be a hard decision. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty like, like to me, I mean, there are companies that do really well in the public markets. They're very well suited for the public markets, but they have to be constructed a certain way and they have to be organized a certain way. It has to have a certain kind of culture, a certain kind of executives. We were never built to be a public company. You know, we always, you know, it was like, you know, this kind of interesting uh, space we were in, you know, we, uh, we're very cash flow generative, um, so it was, it was it was sort of a little bit different than your your traditional venture back company that goes public. Um, and the thing I remember is similar to my son experience is towards the last sort of year or two of my time there, um, I had gotten very very far away from the customer. Uh, we had forty five hundred employees at the time. Uh, we had probably fourteen different offices uh, all over the globe. Um, I was spending a lot of time, you know, organizing people to go after the mission. Um, so it felt like, you know, it, it was amazing and it was it was a lot of learning, but I really missed uh, being an entrepreneur again, somebody that was sort of on the ground, like working with folks and, you know, solving problems and uh, uh, being close to the customer, understanding what worked for them and how, you know, how, you know, how do you kind of make things better? Uh, and so, you know, after about four years, I was like, well, I understand the public markets now. I, I get sort of how this, this system works. I really just want to go start something new. So it was, uh, uh, you know, something that I, I sort of, you know, got done with it. And as we were kind of starting this new one, it was definitely a bit of a shock. I had forgotten in 20 years what it was like to be like a brand new startup, to be honest. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been working out okay so far. So. All right, well, let's talk about Aura. So how did the idea come to fruition? What's the background story? So, you know, in 2014, I was, uh, I think I was applying for a loan of some kind of, I think it was a mortgage type of thing. And, you know, I got rejected. So I was kind of curious uh, what had happened and, you know, why it had gotten rejected. So my credit had actually gone down a reasonable amount. And I didn't understand that because generally, I, you know, pay, pay my bills, all, all that type of stuff. And it turned out that there were a bunch of fake accounts that were on my credit and fake uh, 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 credit cards that had been opened that had never been paid. And so as I dug into it, I spent a couple of weeks kind of looking through the stuff. And it, I still, to this day, I can't tell you how exactly it happened, but it did. So I ended up kind of coming out of it with a lot more questions than answers. And I'm a fairly technical person. And I remember thinking, gosh, like this, like if I can't figure this out, there's got to be millions of people out there that are struggling with this. Uh, and, you know, as I dug into it, there were like a hundred solutions. That I, and when it was done at the end of two weeks, I was like, well, I don't know if I'm actually safe or not. Is my family safe? Like, you know, it's like this, like very bad feeling that you have, like you feel anxiety, you feel uh, stressed out, worried for your safety. And so uh, it felt like a big problem. The fact that, you know, I, we kind of came out of it with, not many answers and not knowing of the solutions I put in place 
were going to be enough to prevent another issue from happening. And frankly, like the next three or four years, I had to go to the IRS tax office in person every year to prove that I was myself, mm-hmm. you know, because once you get, once you get sort of uh, a tag with identity theft, then you actually have to prove that you are in fact you. Uh, and so that's sort of the kernel of where this idea came from is say, wouldn't it be nice if you actually had a, an easy button, like something which is an all-in-one solution. It's very affordable. You put it in there. It gives you a lot of transparency about you know how things are happening in your life and making sure that you and your family are safe. And so that was sort of the, the, the inception of Aura. And like, I mean, a lot of companies have been historically building solutions for you know enterprise companies, you know, more corporate IT security solutions, um, but not really focused on consumer protection. And the industry was very fragmented, right? Where each silo you'd have to, okay, antivirus software, or, you know, there was all these different solutions that were not bundled together. Yep. yep. Yeah. So that's exactly right. I think people do not, uh, similar to the SMB market, consumer is also tricky because with SMBs, you have to worry about like the biggest problem in an SMB business is how do you get SMBs to come buy your product and stay customers of yours? at a reasonable cost to acquire them. Like what's your subscriber acquisition cost, right? In some ways that tends to be a very dominant metric for the consumer market too, which is, you know, how do you sort of uh, attract people to come buy your product? And some of the marketing strategies we'd done at Endurance felt very applicable to the the, the consumer space. Uh, you know, cause the, like an SMB, if you're like a two person SMB, it's almost like a selling to a prosumer. It wasn't like quite a consumer. It wasn't really a business. It was sort of something in the middle basically. Uh, so definitely that that strategy, you know, I felt was something very applicable here. It also felt like a lot of white space for that same reason you're saying, Keith, which is there seemed like so many solutions that, you know, the fact that somebody associates security with just putting an antivirus in your computer is so far away from the reality of what's actually going down, you know, day by day inside the world of crime, you know? So basically uh, just be, like a lot of people just assume that, Hey, I put an antivirus on my computer, I'm safe. And if something goes wrong, my bank's going to pay me back. And so it's sort of like this, you know, but in the middle are like 8,000 things that could go wrong potentially when you start looking into it. And so uh, to me, you know, it felt like an unlimited TAM, right? Because this actually was a problem that affected uh, billions of people worldwide. It wasn't sort of, you know, uh, you know, uh, a fortune 5,000 companies, but you know, it's like, it's, it's billions of humans. Uh, the fact that, uh, we could build a solution that could scale to a market that big was really exciting. The fact that we had some skills with, uh, cause, cause a, a whole bunch of people left endurance as I was leaving. And so, uh, we had a good core team as we were starting aura as well. And there's a lot of good expertise and, uh, uh, customer aggregation uh, there as well. So that ended up sort of, you know, being a good confluence of uh, factors. And how did you get the company started as far as building out the platform? So, you know, we knew, you know, as a 20 year old entrepreneur, you feel like you have a lot of time, you know, to, you know, time is not your enemy. Uh, at least it didn't feel that way to me at the time. As a 42 year old entrepreneur, uh, time is not your friend, uh, you know, for, for me anyway, which was basically, hey, to get to some scale, uh, we knew we would do some acquisitions because that just is a good way for us to accelerate uh, the the cycle for us, which is, hey, if we have to build everything from ground up, sometimes it'll take you like six, seven years to go from zero to 10 million bucks because you have to build the product. You have to get the right product market fit. You got to make sure that uh, the good market promotions are right, all of that type of stuff. 
So we wanted to sh short circuit that part of it. So we knew we had to go do acquisitions. We also knew that a big problem with acquisitions is the product ends up being a little bit Frankenstein-ish because you're buying this piece from one place, this other piece from another place. When you put it all together, the customer's like, I, I don't, you know, it doesn't feel like it's a, you know, con you know congruous uh, experience for me as I'm going through the product. So we knew we had to make it very native, even if we got different parts of the of the the eventual solution from different places. So the the platform we started building on the technical side was something that could take all of these things and be able to build something that was much more native. Um, and then we had a whole set of like you know from from in terms of building a company itself, we had a whole lot of philosophical uh, you know pieces that we felt we perhaps didn't get right from endurance, which is basically, you know, we'd never worked on a brand. You know, we, the culture, as I was talking about earlier, uh, was sort of a, you know, learning process all along the way where, you know, you try to figure it out as you go along and you don't know that some of the things you're doing during the builder poor decisions. So this time, since the last go around out of a hundred decisions, 97 are wrong. My, my view was just avoid those 97 and then try to do the other three things. And that ought to help quite a bit. And so those factors really help quite a bit. And also, you know, even putting a board together and putting investors together, you know, we had done everything from raising seed capital, you know, doing uh, venture, venture debt, uh, you know, mid-market private equity, large private equity, syndicate debt, bond debt, public markets, uh, different groups of investors in the public market. So we'd done all of the whole thing kind of up and down. And you have to fit investors in at the right phase of the company build so that they have the right alignment with you as well. So that was another big thing we worried about is, hey, in the early stages, we really want venture and venture growth people to work with us. And as we get bigger, we're okay kind of bringing in more thoughtful private equity folks because access to capital becomes more important as well. So uh, hopefully that answers your question, but uh, but yeah, that's sort of how we thought about it. So, so kind of fast forward to today, how, how does it work? Like the platform, like if I'm a consumer, I sign up for Aura, like how does it work? Yeah, so you come in, you sign up for the platform. Uh, on the back end, you know, we have a whole lot of data and a lot of sort of you know uh, information about the different kinds of uh, hacks, you know, malware, all the things that can happen inside uh, the world of consumer security. We try to make your onboarding super easy. You give us a, a little bit of information um, and whatever we can find else about you. Basically, we'll kind of preload inside the inside the product, so you don't have to go through a lot of uh, uh, onboarding. My headaches and what we've tried to do is you know look at the two most vulnerable constituents inside a family that's a, a senior and uh, children tend to be the two most vulnerable sort of pockets of uh, folks um, and you know trying to figure out if you can kind of build a support system around that so transaction monitoring you know for example today uh, we use a lot of AI to say okay uh, Keith you know for you and your family since we let you share information across the whole family for you and your family, if it turns out that you're spending 10 bucks at Starbucks, that feels like an okay transaction. You're spending 500 at Starbucks, that feels off pattern. So now I want to let your whole family know, assuming you give us permission, that something seems a little bit anomalous. You know, same with credit. You know, something seems a little bit whacked with credit. Um, and then we've now rolled out a call assistant feature, which is for any inbound calls, we can detect scams. Uh, you know, in, in near real time, basically, if it's a scam intent or spam type of call, we'll let you kind of filter it off uh, automatically. Uh, there too, we're rolling out delegation, which means, you know, if you said, hey, if it's a scam call that my parent got, 
like I want to know about it as you know as the as the sun uh because I want to see you know exactly if they're going to get targeted uh for their etc so they can actually route the call over to you and you can kind of you know pick it up and see what's going on type of thing so we try to do a lot of these things you know whether it's email uh uh, messaging or, or you know uh, instant messaging um if it's uh um uh, uh, phone calls you know any of these sort of vectors through which uh, scams can happen how do you prevent those from happening so uh the other big thing we do also is uh, parental controls uh so child safety uh type of features for uh content viewing you can set up limits uh for you know how, how much how much time you want your kids to be viewing different things uh and if there's things like identity theft incidents, et cetera, we will uh, notify the family about that as well. So we've taken all these kind of vertical solutions that were there, kind of put it all together, this all in one thing, made the onboarding super easy for, for and then kind of really organizing that around a family unit, uh, you know, and how, how does a family interact with each other and how can they all be uh, alert and aware of potential issues that could happen to them as a unit, basically. Um, well, you've raised... Um... You know, very large rounds of funding, which makes sense because you you're building a consumer business at scale. So, uh, one of the challenges that companies have building a consumer facing business is is building a brand. Yeah, but I've noticed you've done some unique things, such as you know uh, sponsoring an NBA team, the Minnesota Timberwolves. So, how have yeah. you been thinking about building a brand and raising the awareness for consumers? Yeah, you know, I think it was interesting. Is if you're in sort of a demand capture business where people already know about the problem, they know it's it's problem the kind of things you do are very different than a demand generation business. So in this kind of a business, you know, a lot of people know they have a security problem, but it's not necessarily front of mind, right? I mean, so it's not like you wake up in the morning thinking, oh, like, what's my cybersecurity posture for me and my family today? Like, you know, you're you know, trying to go about your day. And so to get the attention of the consumer um, is first and foremost a little bit difficult. And then once you have their attention, trust is an important factor. Like they have to trust you to do the right thing by them, whether it's, Taking care of their, um, you know, it's like a lot of confidential, you know, private information about their families, et cetera, that we're safeguarding on their behalf. So they have to know that, you know, we take this seriously as well. And so for these factors, becoming a little bit more visible uh, to the to the to the consumer universe uh, is is very important. And a part of that then becomes the brand strategy. So we look at a lot of segments of both our growth audience and who are we going after uh, on the growth side. And, you know, what are good venues that can amplify our message? So they start to understand the problem a lot more. So like, you know, NBA, uh, you know, with the with the, with the the audience base there was one of our target audiences, basically. So we thought that could be a good way to kind of start start that piece of it. Uh, we've got a partnership with Robert Downey Jr. who came on as a uh, an investor and a partner, uh, and he joined our board. Uh, so with him, we've been doing a lot of work, uh, and we'll, you'll see a lot more of this in the fall, in the upcoming fall uh, uh, timeframe to... Um, amplify the different issues that can come up with not being careful with a lot of this information and how easy the solution actually is, whether it's television, a whole bunch of these branding branding campaigns will be running later part of this year. Um, I just recently wrote a book uh, about this as well. That's another way to kind of get the message across. So the way I kind of think about the, the branding is really make people aware of the problem, make them, make them understand that they actually can take control, uh, of the solution uh, to this particular problem and to be able to do that in a way where you can uh, amplify with people that have big platforms, whether it's the NBA or Robert Downey or publishing a book, 
you know, these are all things that can amplify the message to lots, lots and lots of people, which is beneficial. Yeah. And like, you've done some unique things in terms of building the company and getting unique investors. And, you know, you mentioned Robert Downey Jr., but how did you get Jeffrey Katzenberg involved? Cause you know, that's another person that is well-known in the Hollywood circles, but not necessarily, you know, in the, in the tech community. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so it's interesting with Jeffrey, um, we were looking at acquiring a business uh, in the VPN space because we thought VPN was an important part of the security journey for families. Like, like, like enterprises have VPN, families don't necessarily have a VPN. So we kind of wanted to get the plumbing to be able to kind of build that into a product to make our timeline shorter. And we were looking at this company and uh, as a potential acquisition, and we found out as we were going through it that this firm called Wonderco had acquired it. So we looked it up and it was run by Sujay Jaswa, who's the uh, co-founder of Dropbox, and by Jeffrey Kassenberg, who was this media mogul. And we thought, why, you know, why is like a Dropbox person and a media mogul actually bu buying a business that, you know, is in the consumer VPN space? So I had a mutual friend introduce uh, uh, me to, to Sujay, and we spent time with them. And it turned out their thesis was exactly the same as ours, which is, hey, we want to start with one product, and we want to basically, you know, uh, potentially either acquire or build a variety of things to kind of come up with an all-in-one consumer security solution. And we said, well, that's funny because we're thinking about doing the same thing too. And we've actually gotten this amount of progress. And they said, oh, okay, well, if you ever need capital, let us know. And we were about to go buy this public company. Um, so, uh, you know, we called them up and said, they actually had told us about this public company. So I called them up and said, hey, we're going to do this. Do you guys want to partner up with us? And they said, yeah, we'd love to. And so that's how we, you know, kind of got, got uh, introduced to Jeffrey. Um, and, uh, you know, it's now been almost five years that we've been working pretty closely and it is uh, quite a treat, you know, to be able to see people at the top of their game, you know, whether it's a Robert or Jeffrey uh, that just, you know, have the ability to uh, just simply be excellent. I think, you know, I, I don't know a better way to put that. Uh, and so it's been a great learning experience for me personally as well, to be able to see how other people think about problems and leveraging uh, things they have learned from, you know, like Jeffrey building, like if you think about the movie industry, you almost have to build a brand for every movie that's coming out, mm -hmm. right? If you're putting out 30 movies a year, 50 movies a year, you got to build 50 brands basically because you kind of need to acquire consumers. You got to make sure that you've got to, I mean, there's some nuances and differences. Like you got, you know, that's like a big pop with like a long tail. With SaaS businesses, you can kind of ramp up slowly. You don't need to worry about a big, big flare or a big pop, but a lot of the mechanics are kind of similar. So, uh, it's been great learning about that from from people that I that I think very highly of. So it'd be fun to be a fly on the wall for the for the board meetings. <laughs> so so what's the uh, the current stage of the business? Like whatever you could share as far as number of subscribers yeah, I mean, or whatever. Yeah, we're yeah employees. we're in growth mode now as a as a business. You know we're growing fast. We're profitable. Uh, you know we kind of we're, we're kind of a break even business. We're investing pretty heavily behind product. We're investing pretty heavily behind. Uh, brand as you, as you mentioned as well um we could be even more profitable but you know we have decided to kind of you know basically run it with a slight profit and put put a lot of money back into the business uh we're growing you know uh uh 50ish percent a year uh it's you know it's, uh, we're doing hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue at the moment and so so it's at that kind of nice inflection point where uh, we've taken some risk out of the business we're trying to get some level of scale uh but there's just a lot more fertile ground in the future. And so, uh, so it's, it's sort of an exciting stage of the company. If you will. 
And you've been uh, very active as it relates to hiring at the company. So w- what's it like to work there? What's the culture like at Aura? Look, we're, we're super mission-driven as a company. I mean, we our mission is to create a safer internet. The company, everybody organizes around uh, this mission. We are uh, very, very low ego. We are very much about sort of, you know, having it be a great learning, fun journey as a culture. Uh, we are very, very uh, uh, focused on top-tier talent. It's got to be people that are very, very action-oriented. It's got to be people that are systems thinking and are humble enough to keep on learning uh, through their through their entire life. So lifelong learners. And so that's the, the three set of filters we tend to sort of apply as we're bringing in folks for different roles. And a lot of them fit that criteria. So as a result, you end up with people that are hungry to learn that, you know, want to really make an impact um, that set a high bar both for themselves and for everybody around them. So it, it elevates, uh, elevates the culture uh, quite a bit. And, uh, you know, and we generally have the the no jerk policy. You know, so so even if it's an extraordinarily talented person, if they're not able to drive the right sort of you know team dynamic, uh, they t- seem to get kind of weaned off uh, automatically by the by the business basically. Uh, but you know, over time, so uh, I I like to think it's fun. It's sort of a, it's a big mission. It's a big problem we're solving, and it's a well funded, uh, growing. Uh, business and so with with a lot lot more runway and opportunity in front of us so and you had a recent uh announcement that the company's pledging to be carbon neutral by the end of the year how did that come to fruition we you know this is something again everything we do so we have a big csr program within the company so we tend to look at uh different constituencies that have difficulty in the sort of cybersecurity area so like you know foster kids for example we've been doing a lot there with uh Foster kids that come in and out of the system tend to have a lot more data stolen. Uh, you know, uh, uh, victims of domestic abuse. Uh, that tends to be something uh, where they have a, a lot of kind of data issues from the uh, abuser. Uh, and, you know, where they're using existing data to either mess up their credit, you know, financial fraud, things like that. Um, so, uh, as we've kind of been looking at these different things, you know, we tend to partner with a lot of organizations that that are vertically focused on that particular constituency and almost all of them as they think about their uh you know posture towards promoting the earth uh as sort of a sustainable uh planet and making sure that you know there, there's not uh too much carbon consumption it's a topic of conversation that comes up over and over again with a lot of these uh, folks that we kind of tend to work with pretty closely and so uh as we started looking into it and see what our own footprint was if you have to build a safer internet, you know, you want to build it for a planet that's got the ability to, you know, sustain, survive. So it felt felt like it was very much within our charter. Uh, and it was something that was very important to a lot of uh, our CSR partners and our, ourselves as well. So that was a big uh, a drive for it to get slotted in this year. It was something we thought about for the next, in the next three to four year uh, journey, but we ended up kind of pulling it forward and, uh, and making commitment to that to be, uh, to be completely neutral by the end of the year. So you scaled two companies. So what 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 are some of the biggest lessons learned of, of that journey? Uh, I mean, I would say number one, always bet on yourself. It always tends tends to become it tends to become big. It, it, it's always it's it's easier said than done because, like I said, you know, uh, you know, you tend to place a lot more hurdles in your own way than you know perhaps is needed, especially as you get older. 
things seem a bit more scary than they ought to be. So taking the leap is always very difficult, but no matter what it is, you know, uh, betting on yourself is always a good bet. I think uh, I would say uh, being humble enough to know that you don't know everything is very, very important as a leader, uh, you know, and the kind of culture you want to drive uh, being very curious, I would say is a huge, huge uh, uh, accelerant, I would say for a business, because if you're very curious, you tend to ask a lot of questions. You tend to learn quite a bit. You're able to apply things uh, kind of back and forth. And the other thing I would say is uh, if you can wait to raise capital, wait as long as you possibly can, uh, I have never met an entrepreneur of a success, you know, or, or, or founder or owner of a successful business that said, well, I wish I owned less of my company. I mean, you know, everybody wants to own as much as they can. So if you can, you know, keep the business growing uh, without taking outside capital, uh, well, some businesses you can, you know, you just need a lot of CapEx. You got to put, uh, you know, if you're building fiber or something like that, you know, you need the dollars. But most businesses, you know, if you can... Uh, be very scrappy, uh, you know, maybe you do a small friends and family round or you sort of, you know, uh, pull in a customer or two that could kind of pre-fund stuff, et cetera. So try to be thoughtful about it because uh, the further along you are in the journey, you get to own more of your company. And uh, that just means that, you know, um, in a sort of a roundabout way, you're betting on yourself again, you know, by, by owning more of your company. So what about um, as an extension of that, like, valuations are a little finicky right now for entrepreneurs raising capital. So how should they be thinking about valuations? Look, I mean, you know, the the way I tend to think about it is valuations oscillate around value, right? And what value you're creating for your customers and what value you're creating for your uh, employees. And, uh, uh, you know, so it's, it's sort of like the stock stock market might be going sort of, you know, up and to the right, but if you look at any pocket, it's always going to up and down, up and down, up and down. Basically, right? it's not like it's a linear one, one line going, going up and right. So valuations are sort of like that. You know, if you look at the long term trajectory, it is uh, going up and right. But if you look at small pockets, it's always oscillating around. So my view is, if you have to go raise capital, um, you know, as long as it's not particularly punitive. If you need it to be able to really create value for the business and really think hard about it, like, do you actually need the money to go create value or can you do it another way? Um, And if you can do it another way, you ought to. But if you feel like, hey, there's just no other choice, I got to go raise the money, just take the punch in the job. Because if you, if it turns out that you're right and the business gets bigger, it will be irrelevant uh, because it ends up being a big enough business, the valuation will go back up. So I think as long as you kind of anchor uh, money you're raising, dilution, et cetera, because the valuation question is really a dilution question as to, uh, you know, at what cost am I raising capital? Um, so if you truly believe that to drive incremental value, you need the capital um, and there's no other alternative, then, you know, unfortunately it is, it is what it is. And if you're stuck in a bad cycle, but the good news is if you build a good business that's high value, um, things do stabilize over time. We've seen this over and over again. I've been doing this now for almost 30 years. And um, it, it always feels like when you're in the pocket that it's never going to turn, but it always does, you know, at, at least so far uh, from from what I've seen. So, All right. How about a good uh, podcast or book recommendation? Oh, gosh. Uh, I have, uh, I just finished uh, Rereading Principles uh, by Ray Dalio. I, th- I thought that was an amazing uh, book, uh, especially if you're a biz, if you're a business person, 
uh, uh, Ray, Ray Dahlia is the, the founder CEO of Bridgewater, uh, 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 Bridgewater, I think was the name of his hedge fund, which is like a huge hedge fund. Um, and he uh, has taken a lot of what he's learned in his life and crystallized it down to uh, certain principles of how to how to how to live your life, you know, both on a personal basis and also for, for on a professional basis. I found it uh, quite quite good, quite helpful. So nice, yeah, it's a new one that I haven't. Sometimes you get some of the repeat books, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> the hard thing about hard things and all the you know amazing yeah, masterpieces. Books, you know, are, are always, yeah, always but that's a new too. one. I like so, that. Yeah. 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 We're going to, we, we usually publish like a summer reading list of all the podcast recommendation books that we, we collect along the way. So that's a good one. Love it. Love it. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? Uh, I have four kids. So they, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, not necessarily fun, but I feel like I chauffeur a lot, you know, from, from games <laughs> and, uh, and plays and, and, uh, and such. So that takes up a lot of time, but usually, I mean, we spend a lot of time as a family together. That's, uh, that's very important to kind of stay grounded, I would say. And, um, also, um, uh, love to golf when I can, uh, you know, and basically if, if I can get enough time to go watch a movie, that's, that's always a special extra treat, but, uh, uh, but yeah, so. Well, this isn't meant to be like, um, you know, like a customer acquisition channel, but you know, I just want to close it out with, um, you know, the, the time to engage or, or sign up for an aura is not when you've been hacked it's before right exactly right that's exactly right so you know it, i think that you know it's, it's sort of like uh the analogy is, is that of a uh a fire alarm right i mean so if you basically have the world's fastest fire alarm and it lets you know very very quickly that your house is on fire that's great but you still have a problem your house is on fire like wouldn't it be better if you just prevented the fire and so that's what we tell a lot of our customers is hey you know the best time to do it is before it happens. Don't wait till after because the cleanup is quite messy. Like even with all the tools, technology, everything that's out there, uh, the cleanup after you've been a victim of uh, one of these types of crimes, and you kind of saw that on 60 Minutes last night. I mean, I, I hadn't seen the segment until uh, they released it. Obviously, and, uh, I, I was just I was watching it with my mom last night and she said, wow, this is great. Uh, it's a really, really good segment. And I'm really scared. Like I'm like really worried. Like I, you know, and so for the first time in five years, she's like, well, does your product actually solve this issue? I said, yeah, mom, it does. And she's like, can you set it up <laughs> on my phone? So, so we got a new customer out of that, out of that last night. So uh, it's kind of interesting. But. Well, just for people listening, like the segment is definitely worth watching because you see people that are victim of these scams and they lose tens of thousands of dollars. But then there was one person that lost $800,000. 800,000 bucks. I mean, it's just insane. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. So yeah, scary stuff. And, you know, everybody should stay safe and uh, make sure exactly. that, that they're well protected and hopefully don't have to go through a lot of machinations and confusion to be able to get themselves feeling safe uh, as a family. So, well, Hari, thanks so much for, you know, everything you've shared as far as building companies, but obviously what you and your team at Aura are doing to make the internet safer. Thank you, Keith, for having me on. I appreciate it. And thank you for all your support, uh, helping us uh, find amazing talent and, uh, I uh, appreciate being on the show. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.